Our journey through the Old Testament together has taken us down many roads. We've heard many stories, and we've heard some joyful stories of what God has done for his people in the Old Testament, and we've also heard some very trying things God has done for his people in the Old Testament. And we are currently now in a very dark time for the people of Israel. Last week, Queen Esther saved the entire Israelite population from extermination. Um, But they're still not back yet. They've been deported. They've been spread about um, the empire because they were defeated in battle. The Israelites were in a very bad place. And when you think about it, After a war, after Jerusalem was conquered, after the wall was torn down, after the city was burnt to the ground, what hope did they have? What hope did they have of ever being rebuilt? When I think about places that were just devastated by war, of course, I love the History Channel, so I think about like World War II and all the pictures that I've seen of all the cities that were just systematically annihilated. I mean, the Nazis going from block to block to block, tearing everything down by wicked design. Um, But this week I found some interesting pictures. These pictures were intriguing because they showed both the devastation that war could bring, but they also showed the restoration that came after World War II. So check it out. Here's the first picture. This is an old picture of a building. Look, the whole top of it is just even missing uh, from, from war. And yet what the photographer did was they took the picture today, and they showed how that place has now been restored, rebuilt. Here's the next one. Talk about your average street corner. You could pull up and make a right and not even know what, what had been ruined in the past. And yet when you see the picture from long ago, you see the rubble. Check out the next one. Talk about the shame of defeat. Talk about the humiliation of being a conquered nation. And yet today, there's just a couple enjoying freedom. Here's the next one. What was once an assault, what was once a beach landing, what was once trying to win and assault the enemy is now just a tranquil vacation spot. It's been restored. And here's the last one. Here's a place dignified out front, uh, and yet it was broken, it needed repair, humiliated, disgraced, and, and yet today it's, it's restored. Jerusalem sat in rubble. It had been burnt to the ground, ashes. What hope did they have of ever seeing it rebuilt? They didn't have the future picture like we have today. But here's the good news that we're going to see today. Here's the good news. Your God can rebuild what your sin has destroyed. Are you glad to know that what sin destroys in your life can be rebuilt by your God? The reason they were torn down, the reason they were in ashes, the reason they had been exiled is because their sin. Long before the walls fell down, sin had penetrated their hearts. They were ruined within before they were ruined on the outside. And the visible picture of the city being burned and the walls being torn down just shows us the invisible realm that was ravaged by sin. But God was about to move to rebuild what sin had destroyed in the land of the Israelites. We serve a God who will rebuild what sin will destroy. 
I want to give you hope this morning that whether it's an area in your life that sin has ruined or maybe you feel like your entire life has now been torn down because of it, I want to give you hope that God can and will rebuild the ruins if you walk by faith. Let's pray and then we'll learn about a man named Nehemiah who God chose to lead the rebuilding. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that these stories are in the Bible, stories of men who didn't have it all together, stories of men who didn't wake up. They weren't born into a perfect world. They were born into dark times. Use Nehemiah to teach us, Father, how you go to work when areas in our life fall down and are broken. We pray that you would give us this hope, Lord, as only you can. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and find the book of Nehemiah. It's close to the center of your Bibles, but like Esther last week, Nehemiah is not placed in your Bibles chronologically. Uh, If it were placed in your Bible according to where it happened in history, it would be almost toward the New Testament. It would be very far. You're actually turning to the year 484, 485, or 445, I'm sorry, B.C. Okay, and what has happened already? Well, just to give you a summary of where we've been. In 2000 B.C., God told one man to leave your country and your people and your land and go to a land I will show you. Who, Who is that? What's his name? Come on, hit me with it. What's his name? Abraham. 2000 B.C., and he went. And his feet touched the promised land, but there was nothing there yet. He said, but I'm going to fill it with descendants as numerous as the sand on the sea. Uh, So then in 1400 BC, there was a man who led the people out of Egypt into the promised land. And what was his name? Yeah, Moses. Then 1000 BC, finally there was a good king who established the kingdom in the land. Guess who that was? What's his name? King David. He established the kingship, and finally Israel had a consolidated rule. But then in 586 B.C., I mean, you're talking 500 years after David, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came and the Babylonians tore Jerusalem down and deported the people. It's 586 B.C. And here we are, just 445 B.C., so just over 140 years later, and there's a man named Nehemiah who's serving the king. And God wants to use him to rebuild the city. So in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, here's what it says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. You know, they didn't have email. They didn't have texts back then, right? So somebody shows up from like, a long, hundreds of miles away. And he's like, hey, what, what's going on in Jerusalem? Like, what's going on in our land? And Well, verse 3, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It wasn't just that Nebuchadnezzar had torn the walls down. It seems like they had tried to start rebuilding it. Some of the Israelites had gotten back, but then the government officials had petitioned the king, and they stopped the whole thing, and they tore the thing down again. It was hopeless. It was ruined. Here's the first thing you can jot down. Write this down in your bulletins. Bring all your brokenness into God's presence. Bring all of your brokenness into God's presence. 
Nehemiah was looking around and he was, he was realizing the cost, the, the cost of the damage that sin did to his nation. And he was realizing the price was so astronomical. I read a news story recently about a woman who got her electric bill in the mail and there was a surprise. You know what it's like to try and make your budget, you know, and you predict what the bills are going to be and then you get a surprise. Well, her surprise, here it is, we'll show you a picture, woman receives $1 billion electric bill. This is not a joke. In the mail, she got a $1 billion, $16 million, $500,000 bill for her electric. <laughs> she went into shock. Her name is Scarlett Hall. She lives in Georgia. And she contacted the electric company and said, last month I pawned the title to my car to pay the light bill. She says, now I think I might need to start selling organs to pay this. What's going on? And they said, we're sorry, ma'am. There has been a mistake. And so they adjusted her bill. And it turns out that she didn't owe a billion dollars. But Nehemiah, Nehemiah, there's no mistake the cost of the sin of your people is astronomical. You've been, you've been farmed out to the corners of the empire. Your city lies in ashes. There, there's no mistake. This is the cost of your sin. And the cost of his sin broke him. And sin will always overpromise. It will tell you all the pleasure that it will bring into your life. But it will hide the cost. It will hide its own price tag of what it will consume in your life. The truth is, sin will ruin you. The Israelites didn't believe God. So what happens when I believe the lies? What happens when I let sin creep into my life? What happens when it starts to ruin things in my life? Sin can ruin many things in your life. Sin can ruin your family. Sin can ruin your marriage. Sin can ruin your career. Sin can ruin your finances. Sin can ruin your health. Sin can ruin your faith. What happens then? What happens is the Bible shows us through Nehemiah's example that you pick up the brokenness that sin has brought into your life and you carry it into God's presence and then you sit down. Because God welcomes you in your brokenness in his presence. Bring all of your brokenness into God's presence. Here's the first sub-point here. Write this down. You have to admit that it's broken beyond repair. You have to admit that it's broken, that it's broken beyond repair. There's a problem, and I have to admit that it's a problem and that there's brokenness there. The guys don't often like to admit that something's broken, especially if it's something that we fixed. Am I right? It's not broken. It's fixed. Well, then fix it again. No, it's we have to be able to be honest and to say this is broken and it's broken beyond repair. And then we have to bring that brokenness into the Lord's presence. Second, jot this down. Once you're there, what do you do? Well, express your grief through prayer and fasting. Express your grief through prayer and fasting. He says here in verse 4, I sat down and I wept and mourned. It says for days. He was feeling such deep anguish that he went without food for days. The tears were, were flowing from his eyes because of the brokenness that sin caused. 
It also says that he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, the ruin on earth brought him before the God of heaven, where he prayed and he fasted and he mourned. Hey, ask yourself this. In the areas in your life where you feel like sin has just damaged you or broken you, or hey, have you prayed about it? I don't mean like before the meal. A kid once told me, prayer is for food. No. Prayer is for far more than food. I don't mean a quick and passing prayer. I mean if you devoted sustained, heartfelt, collaborative, ongoing prayer for the areas of brokenness in your life. He, he said, for days I prayed, I fasted. Have you wept? Have you wept? Real men don't cry. They don't weep. Listen, have you wept because of the areas that are broken in your life, because of the people that are broken around you? Sin will drive you to a place of heartbreak. Do you know that the Bible says, there's a verse where the Bible says, God has collected all of our tears in his bottle, that they're precious to him. I don't know what kind of a parent you are, but my kids cry. I have never gone to my kids and said, hold on, come here. I'm going to catch some of those tears in my bottle. And then I'm going to wear them around my heart and think about you all day long. (laughs) I've never done that. Stop crying. Get up and behave. You've done this yourself. That's the kind of, but not my heavenly father. My heavenly father sees my tears. I've wept in the Lord's presence before. Thankfully, sometimes with joy because of something God has done, but also because of anguish over something he has not yet done. Sadness of unanswered prayer. Sometimes I've just thought of a lost loved one who's not responding to the truth and it's just broken me. Um, Sometimes just seeing evil in the world and what some people have done, it just breaks you down. And listen, the... The presence of the Lord is a place for weeping. You can go there. You can sit there. You can stay there. The Lord will not chase you out of his presence when you are broken. Express your grief through prayer and fasting. Isaiah 51, 14 to 15, we'll put it up on the screen, but here's what it says. This is the kind of God you serve. It says, and it shall be said, build up, build up. Prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, but get this, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you know what the word contrite means? It means means a roof has collapsed. It means broken, caved in. And when that happens to your heart, when, there is a, when the roof of your heart collapses, God says, that's where I dwell. His presence is for your brokenness. But will you bring all of your brokenness into his presence? Will you admit that it's broken beyond repair? Will you express your grief through prayer and fasting? That's what the Lord is beckoning you to do. And that's what Nehemiah is modeling for us. The great news is your God is a rebuilder. Whatever's ruined in your life, if you pick it up and bring it into his presence, he will rebuild it. 
Well, the story goes on in verse 5. It says in verse 5, And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Here's the second thing we learn. First, bring all your brokenness into God's presence. Second, confess your sin and your foolishness. Write that down. Confess your sin and your foolishness. If the brokenness in your life is because of a sin in your heart, you have to confess your sin. You have to repent of your sin or God can't begin to rebuild you. Now, too often I meet with people who are not confessing their sin and they're not repenting of their sin. What they're doing is they're trying to manage their sin. Right? Well, I've got this under control. I'm, I'm toning this sin down a little bit. I'm reducing this sin. I'm, uh, listen, you can't manage your sin. You've got to repent of it and let it go. Trying to manage your sin is like trying to keep a pet T-Rex. Go ahead and put it in any cage you are capable of building. It's getting out. And it's going to gobble you up. You have to repent of sin. You have to bring it into the Lord's presence. You have to confess it. And you have to find forgiveness. Just think for a moment of why our God would want us to confess our sins. We know it's his will, but why would he want that? I mean, he is omniscient, right? I mean, he knows everything, right, about you. He knows everything. So what's with this like, okay, I'm going to go into the Lord's presence. God, I've got something to tell you. You're not going to like it. As if he's like up there like, angels, why has no one told me of what this person has done? He's about to reveal something to me that I have yet to know. Why is, what's with this, me going into God's presence and, all right, here, listen. Confession is telling God what he already knows about you. Why? So he can show you what you already know about him. That if you confess your sins, he will show you love and forgiveness. Confession is telling God something he already knows about you so that he can show you what you already know about him. And the crisis is important. No, it's not enough to sin and then to feel bad. You have to confess it. You have to ask for forgiveness. That's called repentance. And the Lord wants us to confess our sins so that we might be forgiven. So the broken areas in your life, if it is due to your sin, I mean, have you gone to the Lord? Have you opened it up to him? In his presence with your brokenness, have you then told him, Listen, this is what I did. Have you asked for forgiveness? God is not shocked by anything you confess to him. And Nehemiah, what he doesn't do is, he doesn't go into the Lord's presence and start pointing fingers. God, I'm here because that last generation of Israelites really blew it for the rest of us. Lord, I'm not, Lord, I'm not here to blame. My parents may have done this and they could have done better, but... They did the best they could. My spouse maybe doesn't understand. 
what this feels like. But you know what, Lord? I'm not, I'm not here to blame. They've sinned. But I'm here with my sin. Lord, I'm here with my sin. And you want to know what will cripple your spiritual growth faster than anything? Is the victim mentality. The, the finger pointing of my problems and my worries and my pain is the, the fault of everyone around me, including my God. You become impenetrable to the work of the Holy Spirit. Because you don't even understand that even if the other person is at fault, God still allowed it to work on you. You have to confess your sin and your foolishness and not justify it and not excuse it and not blame other people and not hide it. Have you done that? Well, I'm kind of nervous about doing that. I mean, I don't know how God would receive me if I were to do that. I don't know how if the, the people in my life would receive me if I were to actually open up about that. I mean, they all seem to have it all together. The good news is, Nehemiah, when he goes to the Lord's presence, on what basis does he ask for forgiveness? On what basis does he approach the Lord? It's not on the basis of his own goodness. You see, he doesn't go to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I've been really good for the last week. So, so now that I'm a good boy, I'm going to talk about two weeks ago when I was a naughty boy. Okay, but as if God's looking down like, I'm really glad you fixed yourself up before you came to me in your brokenness. That's not the way it works. What did Nehemiah say? He said, God, you are the God who keeps your covenant and steadfast love. The word covenant means a binding promise. He went to the Lord and said, Lord, you made promises to Moses in the covenant. I'm here to claim them. You promised your love and loyalty to your people. Not because I've been a good boy for a couple weeks. Because of your promised love, I come into your presence. And you see, when you get this, it will revolutionize the way that you deal with your sin in God's sight. If you understand that you could live a sinless day. Or a sinless week, and it would make God love you no more. Or you could have the worst sinful day of your life, and it would make God love you no less. God's love for you transcends your performance entirely. It's the covenant love of God that gives you the basis on which to approach a holy God and say, Lord, you've made some promises, and I'm here to claim them. Not in my goodness. I haven't cleaned myself up. I'm still broken. I'm I'm a mess, but... You made some promises. And in the New Testament, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. We're under the, the new covenant that was, that was enacted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that covenant is an unconditional covenant where God promises his love to you. In Romans eight thirty eight, it says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Make your list. Doesn't matter how long it is. Doesn't matter how vile it is. You bring it into his presence. Trust me. God's not going to be like, "Uh uh-oh, i got to take Romans 8 out of the Bible now because of what he did. Get me the eraser. Turns out there is something that will cause me to take my love from her. No, that's not the way God works. It doesn't matter how sinful you've been. 
God beckons you into his presence so that he can begin rebuilding you. But if you don't confess your sins and you don't repent, then the rebuilding can't begin. Nehemiah confesses his own sins. He confesses the sins of his people. In verse 5, though, he's very clear to say that the Lord keeps his loving covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. A few things on this. First of all, God loves you. God doesn't love your sin. All right? God doesn't love your sin. So when you come to him with your sin, he is going to go to work to dig it out at the roots and remove it from your life. Now, I'm not really good at landscaping, but every once in a while I have to do some landscaping because in our backyard, the previous owner of our house planted the world's largest garden in, in Alsip, Illinois. It spans the entire backyard, and there's double, it's like a double-decker garden. This woman was, like, obsessed with gardening. So we have to, like, manage it and dig stuff out every year, or it's going to, like, take over our house. So I went over there uh, a year ago, and I had to dig up a, a yucca plant. Has anybody in here ever dug up a yucca plant? All right, here's a yucca plant. I'll show you a picture. It looks like an innocent little fun green plant, right? They're pretty, they're pretty and low-maintenance, but started digging and I figured I'd have to get, you know, a couple inches down and then the root system, I'd get under it and then I'd just plop it right up. Well, I kept digging and digging and digging. And then, like halfway through the digging, I pulled that up. That's part of the root. Part of the root. I kept digging and digging and digging. And an hour later, I finally, I'm like in the hole up to my like, you see like my eyes peeking out of this hole. And I'm still trying to get this, get up. This was like, put in this garden by the enemy. The enemy is into agriculture. Read your Bibles. Weeds, right? He does yuccas too. All right, here's the next one. When I finally got it out, look, it's like a two foot, two and a half feet long of thick, clumped roots. It was like holding onto the foundation of my house. I was like, let it go. You're coming. No, I'm not. Yes. It was like talking to me. I finally got it out, and I ripped it out, and I threw it on the patio. And sin is like that. And when you come into God's presence, you see he loves you, and he'll forgive you in a moment. But then he starts digging. And the roots of sin in your heart can go back years, can go back decades, and he's going to dig it all out, and he's going to replace it with a planting of righteousness. This is what he did with Israel. He tore them out of the promised land and put them somewhere else so he could get the soil ready to bring them back. And he will rip the sin out of your heart and it will take time and it will be painful. But he will go to the bottom and he will tear it out so that he can plant righteous things in there. But you have to repent for it to happen. God will rebuild the ruins by faith, but you have to bring all your brokenness into his presence. You have to confess your sin and foolishness knowing that it's God's faithful love to you that allows you to bring your sin into his presence. And then you have to believe that God can bring beauty from the ashes. Jot that down. You have to, by faith, believe that God can bring beauty from the ashes. Reading on in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It goes on to say this. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. What's Nehemiah doing? Nehemiah is praying the Bible right back to God. Lord, you said this. You said that if we were unfaithful, you were going to scatter us. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. In verse 9, Nehemiah quotes Deuteronomy 4, 25 to 31. And then in verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy 9, 29. He's praying the Bible right back to God and claiming promises of restoration. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He's thinking back to the redemption when God led them out of slavery to sin in Egypt and how God saved them. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he tells us who he is. He says, now I was a cupbearer to the king. Hey, are you willing to call God to remember his promises and to believe that God will bring beauty up from the ashes in your life? By faith, are you willing to ask him for it? Hey, remember, God has already solved the biggest problems in your life. Your redemption happened when you first repented of your sins and asked Jesus to save you. That's the hardest thing God will ever do in your life. And if he's already done the hardest thing you could ever ask him to do, every other request you bring to him after that is easy. Lord, I'm asking you to do something easier than you've already done. You have already saved my soul from hell forever and secured my place in heaven for eternity. I don't know how you did that. It's the hardest thing you've ever done for me. But now I have something easier to ask you. It puts your problems into perspective when you understand that he is the one who redeemed you. And Nehemiah was claiming this. Lord, if you brought them out of Egypt, you can bring them back from captivity. You are the great and the awesome and the mighty God. Now, Nehemiah being the cupbearer to the king was very significant. Uh, last week, we learned that Esther was the queen. And Esther's husband uh, was uh, Ahasuerus, who was um, the current king's dad. So Esther was married to the king who Nehemiah serves, his dad. And that king was killed in his sleep by a treacherous servant. So what the next king did was he appointed what's called a cupbearer and took some precautions to try and keep his rule secure from treachery. So Nehemiah's job as the cupbearer, if any of you are looking for work, let me recommend this job to you. It's called the cupbearer. You can go and Google it. And maybe you could find a position. Uh, but Nehemiah, whenever the king's great food would be brought, Nehemiah would get to eat it first and he'd get to drink some of the wine. And then the king would just watch to see if he died. He lived. I can have lunch. And then the king would eat the food because Nehemiah didn't die. <laughs> and you think your job is not good. <laughs> but it was more than just kind of being a firewall between the king and, and somebody who wanted to kill him. Because he was so close to the king and so ever present with the king, this was actually a high up position where he was a counselor, somebody who the king wanted around. Uh, he would also be in charge. It would be almost like he's like the CFO of the empire. He's in charge of like a pretty big portion of what's going on. That's often how this cupbearer would serve. And um, the king, Artaxerxes, he had issued a stop work order on the work in Jerusalem because some local corrupt officials wrote him a letter and the king wrote back, all right, stop all this work and tear down the wall. And Nehemiah now sees the king every day and realizes he has to do something about the problem. So reading in chapter 2, it says this, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. 
Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Nehemiah is writing this. He's like, he's like, I, I got to tell the king, but I don't know when to tell him. But I don't know when. To, and then he, he's just like looking down, and the king's like, "You have sadness of the heart. What is it, Nehemiah?" And then he's like, oh, "I got to tell him. I got to tell him now." Verse three, I said to the king, "Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city?" The place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? What do you want? What do you want me to do about it? And Nehemiah's like, this is my chance. It says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. What a role model he is. Four months have passed since he got the bad news. Four months have gone by, and he's been praying and fasting and weeping, and praying, and four months. And now the king's like, what is it? What is it that you want? But it says, Nehemiah, pray it again. This is like a quick prayer. This is like a, here I go, Lord, help me. You ever prayed those prayers before? Okay, Lord, this person's calling me again. Please help me. Hello. Okay, Lord, my child is out of control. I got to go in there. I don't know if I'm going to come out alive. Help me. Okay, Lord, I'm going to dig up the next yucca plant. I really, help have you prayed a real fast, real desperate prayer? That's what Nehemiah is doing right now. And God hears those. God hears those. He says, so I prayed. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Verse 5, and said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? What's the plan? What's the plan? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river. See, because there's some political resistance here. That, it, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asip, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. And so the rebuilding begins. Nehemiah, my great servant, you're free to go. Oh, and here's letters to give you safe passage. It says later, oh, and by the way, I'll give you an army military escort. Oh, and, and here's the Home Depot credit card. Just stop and get as much lumber as you need on the way. We'll, we'll fund the rebuilding of your city. But Nehemiah had to believe that God could do it. He had to believe God could and would bring beauty up from the ashes. Two subpoints come along with this one. Two questions. Ask yourself this. Number one, are you willing to wait? Write that down. Are you willing to wait? Four months of prayer, four months of fasting, four months of waiting, and then finally God goes to work. Are you willing to give God time? It's so sad when I talk to people who know that they need God to do something, but they just aren't willing to wait. They thought God would do it quick, and when God doesn't do it quick, they jump ship. Well, I thought God would just do it like as soon as I asked, and they're not willing to wait. People will come to me and they'll say, you know what, our marriage needs help, and I'll, I'll meet the first meeting, and then I'll say, okay, let's set up a few more meetings, and then somebody will, what do you mean more meetings? 
I already came to this one. Let's fix it. No, you, it's going to take time. It took time to break it. It's going to take time to fix it. Well, I don't have time. Well, then you don't want God to fix it. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to devote sustained time to let God fix this? Second question, are you willing to plan? Are you willing to plan? When the king said, how long are you going to be gone? What's going to happen? Nehemiah had the plan. So for four months he was praying and he was planning. So when the time came, he gave the plan. Are you willing to plan? People will come to us and reach out for help from time to time with their finances. And we always love initially to help in any way that we can. Um, but then we have one of our financial peace coaches sit down with them and, and say, well, let's, let's come up with a budget. <laughs> budget? What do you mean budget? We've never lived on a budget. We don't need a budget. <laughs> okay. Are you willing to plan or are you not willing to plan where your finances are going? Because if you're not willing to plan, it's going to stay broken. But if you're willing to plan, it's going to get better. But people who aren't willing to wait and people who aren't willing to plan are frankly unwilling to let God rebuild their lives. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to plan? You've got to have the faith to believe God can do it, but, but then you've got to have the proper perspective to know how he goes about doing it. And I know as I talk about this, it's probably generating feelings in your heart like, man, I would love for God to rebuild this area in my life, but would, would he really? Man, I've really blown this area in my life, but is he going to give me a fresh start? Me? Hey, if you need a fresh start, you're in good company. Uh, I mean, David needed a fresh start, right? After he slept with another man's wife, murdered the man, and then married the man's wife. And God gave him the fresh start. I mean, Jonah needed a fresh start after he became a whale snack. And from the belly of the whale, he asked God to forgive him. And God's like, yep, I hear you. Spit him out. Second chance. What about Peter? Peter's like, no, 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 I'm one of you guys. I'm with this mob that just arrested Jesus. I don't even know him. I've never met him in my life. Needed a, needed a fresh start. And guess what? God gave it to him. God will receive you. He will welcome you in his presence. But you have to be willing to humble yourself. You have to be willing to wait. You have to be willing to follow the plan found in his word. The truth is, really, what's going on in your life is what God wants to do in the life of everyone. Our God is a rebuilder. Our God will rebuild what sin has broken. This is what he does in our world. What's going on in Israel is really just God's way of showing us what he's doing in the world. And Israel is supposed to show us that our sin separates us from our God and, and breaks down everything that's precious to us. We're supposed to learn a lesson about our world from Israel. All right? Have you realized, listen, your entire world is ruined by sin. The whole world around you is ruined by sin. Everyone around you is ruined by sin. Your world within you is ruined by sin. But Jesus ruined sin, and he's rebuilding everything sin has destroyed. This is what our God does. This is what he does. The description of the Messiah in Isaiah 61, 1-4 says it all. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is talking about Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Put that picture up there again. Here's the picture that we saw early on. And I want you to ask yourself this. What area or areas in your life right now are just broken, devastated, crumbled. And in his word, God has already told you he will rebuild it. He's given you the picture of what he wants to do. But will you trust him? Will you come into his presence with the brokenness and will you allow him to begin going to work? I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Let's pray. Lord, how encouraging it is to know that you are a God who doesn't just stand up in heaven, high and far off, and wait for us to fix everything, wait for us to repair ourselves, wait for us to clean our act up. You beckon us to come. You beckon us to enter your presence, sinful, ruined, not knowing how things are going to be put back together. And what a role model Nehemiah is of a man who is just grieved, driven to tears over what sin had done in his world. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be honest with you, to confess our sins to you, to stop putting on the act, to stop thinking we can manage ugly, dark energy of sin and to simply repent because we need your help. I pray that you would help us to trust those around us to share in the rebuilding. Uh, Lord, right now I just give people a moment to enter your presence with whatever it is they're bearing. Lord, based on your love for us, promised through the Lord Jesus Christ, guaranteed to never fail. We ask for your help. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your healing. Though it'll take time, 
Their life may be different, Lord. We trust that you will build it back up. You will bring beauty. What has been ruined will be a glorious repair done by you. We trust you, Lord. In Jesus' name.